is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 197 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Brock Swinson all about screenwriting and the lessons that he's learned from working with top industry professionals. But first, to last week's question, which was, are you on track with your goals this year? Author Lena M. Johnson said, if by on track you mean slamming face down in the dirt, spitting out rocks and climbing back to my feet with bloody knees, a broken nose, then yeah, I'm on track. The only goal I really care about is publishing this book by the end of the year and I'm going to make sure it happens. Emma Jane said, I'm answering this one because I'm incredibly excited to say that I am on track. I set the bonkers goal of writing a trilogy over the summer to do it. I had to double my weekly word count from 10 to 20,000. Life got in the way and I had a slow start, but then I listened to your episode with Nick Thacker and was inspired to take his course on dictation. I've written 20K in four days. What a game changer. Wowzer, that is incredible. I love that the episode has been helpful and that you found a tool in it to help you get those words. That is awesome. This week's question is, what book has been on your TBR forever, but you keep putting off? So for me, that was uh, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I was putting it off because it was historical fiction. Uh, It wasn't historical. It was like contemporary historical uh, in the end. It wasn't quite what I would count as historical historical. For me, historical is anything before about 1910 I would say uh, that's sh- that is not in any way a societal <laughs> norm or anything that is accurate to the genre that's just my personal preference that's just what I kind of see as history um, uh, and uh, yeah so uh, what and the reason for that is because the oldest relative that I had whilst I was alive and she was alive until I was 18 was born I think 1906 or 19 so can't quite remember so I'm like well anything before any relatives that I remember has to be historical (laughs) so yeah that is uh that is literally why I say that so seven husbands of Evelyn Evelyn Hugo and actually I don't normally answer the question of the week so I don't know why I'm telling you this but um I read that this week and it was great uh this is not the book recommendation of the week this week uh for political reasons but um yeah anyway I'm just gonna move on (laughs) anyway the point was I had been putting that book off and I read it The actual book recommendation of the week this week is Dark Lover by J.R. Ward. Now, I have been... I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I had some patrons bully me into this one. You know who you are. No, they didn't really. Uh, They were encouraging helpfully with slight pressure to read this book and I am so glad they did. I absolutely loved it. Now I struggled to get into the book a little bit but once I had gotten into it oh my days I just like I I devoured it in about three sittings I think Um, and it's quite a chunky book as well. I don't typically read books that are sort of close to 500 that often. I, I tend to sit in the like I don't know 280 to three, seven, five, 400 page book, up to 400 I will regularly read. I do, this year, funny enough, I have actually read quite a few, like between four and 500 page books. It's not that I don't read anything over 500 pages. I do, uh, but what I most often do is read them in audio. Um, and it's, I, I blame my activator. <laughs> Everyone drink. Uh, no, anyway, 
this why am I god I am tangenting so hard this week point is Dark Lover is a vampire uh, romance and what I loved about this book is the fact that it's like 20 years old how cool is it that we can write books and tw- in 20 years time some sprightly young things are going to come and find our book and fall in love with our fiction all over again and we'll be writing, you know, God knows what by then. But I just love that I can find these books and fall in love with these characters who've been around forever. Um, anyway, this is Vampire Romance. And it, I love the unique spin on vampires. Like, I'm, I'm trying to read as much vampire fiction at the moment as possible. So if anyone else has recommendations. Um, will I continue the series? Yes, probably. No, not probably. Yes, I will, but not uh, immediately. And that's purely because I don't typically tend to read series back to back. I really love standalones. But um, yeah, I loved it. It was it was raunchy without being kind of explicit. Um, and it was a cool spin on vampires. And yeah, basically just read it because it was great. And I loved it. So there it, there it is. You just have to read it. <laughs> okay. And so Sasha confesses. In personal news and updates. Oh, dear. So I'm really tired. (laughs) And I'm laughing hysterically because we're a week on and I'm pretty sure I said this last week, but I am really tired. Like, kind of catastrophically tired. And, uh, yeah, things are not going well. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, So, look, I... We have been away on trips, but we haven't had a holiday in like four years. And I I definitely think that that is part of the problem. I also realised this week that I don't really have anything that isn't work. Like either I'm at work, I'm at the gym, and the gym has a ton of like benefits. Like, so I'm not saying that it doesn't, but it also is a physical drain on my already mentally drained body. So... uh, I love the gym and I go to the gym, but there are, I have to be, I'm having to be careful at the moment because (laughs) knowing me, I don't know how not to go so hard that I puke. And the other thing is I've noticed I've been puking a lot more at the gym than I do normally. And it's exhaustion. Surprising no one. So anyway, I, I have the gym, I have work. And then I have parenting and being a wife in the house. And that's it. I don't really do anything else. And um, I realised that that's not necessarily a good thing. And so this week I started bullet journaling again. And I used to bullet journal. And I stopped because I made it into this industry where, you know, instead of it just being a quick, you know, hour thing or, you know, half an hour thing every week, I turned it into this fucking industry where every page had to be artistically and beautifully drawn. And I just couldn't do it. And so it was taking me hours every week. And, you know, then it became a chore rather than it just being fun. And I, I, you know, a couple of my friends were like, well, why don't you set it up in Turkey when you go on holiday? And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Well, anyway, the book got arrived and I opened it and was like, oh, I want to do this. So I sat down and did it. And long story short, it was really enjoyable and gave me energy pennies because it was creative. It was a creative thing that isn't work. And I think that I have forgotten that even though um, I have fun all day long because I love my job and I love the stuff that I'm writing now, it's, it is actually still draining. Um, and I think I forgot that. Like, I've been having so much fucking fun. <laughs> like, writing my smut that um, I actually forgot it's quite tiring. <laughs> And, like, I feel like a fucking idiot for not kind of recognising that. 
But I'm tired in a really catastrophic way. <laughs> so this week, I had to stop. I just stopped. And I, and I had these giant holes in my head. So I was working on book three and I was like, why is this story not working? Why are there not enough subplots? And what I did this time was I tried to work with ChatGPT to do the outline. And I have actually realized that at least the way that I was working with it does not work for me. So I am uh, really interested to see how other people are working with it because I, what I have found is that I did not get enough depth in the outline and what ChatGPT did was shortcut my thinking process and my intellection. So now that I have come to write based on my outline, there isn't enough detail um, or more to the point. It, and this is the crazy thing because whenever I have an outline, it's only on post-its. So it's not like it's like this the 5,000 word document or 10,000 word document, they're post-its. But the difference is that my brain has done the thinking to connect like all the characters and to connect all the subplots. So this is a real lesson learned for me is that in I can't work with ChatGPT at the moment. I really want to. So I need to, I, I want to try again. Um, at least just for that brainstorming bit, because as you know, I think aloud and I really enjoy like brainstorming with other people and I don't have anybody else to brainstorm with. So I, that's why I was using ChatGPT. Anyway, it, it hasn't worked. And I now have had to take two days off because I've realized that the, hello Duke, he's now climbing all over my keyboard. No, you can't drink coffee, fucking cat. Uh, anyway, so I have realized that um, I can't work with GPT the way that I was doing it. So I, I'm gonna have to find some people who are more expert at it to talk to. But um, I had to take two days off, one because I hit a physical exhaustion wall. Um, I've been waking up with headaches, going to bed with headaches just because I'm so fucking tired. Um, and two, I need to um, re-outline. And, and in order to do that in the last like 48 hours, I think I've watched a about six or seven movies um, that are all on the trope that I'm writing in this book. And lo and fucking behold, I came up with like a dozen different ways to fix the book. Oh my God, it's so annoying that rest works. Like I cannot tell you how smited I feel by this, by the, but I feel like rest is smiting me because I don't want to rest. I don't like rest. And yes, I know I sound like a four year old right now and I don't care, bite me. Ugh. But anyway, and the point is, at least I've still got my sense of humor, right? <laughs> the point is, fucking rest worked, okay? I watched movies, well, actually, I don't think it was the rest. I think it was the input that worked. And so I'm setting a new um, uh, tradition for myself because I'm not gonna use the R word. Uh, I'm gonna set a new tradition that I am gonna watch like five movies in the trope that I am uh, writing before I start drafting. Uh, or before I finish outline is, outlining is probably the more uh, appropriate thing. So yes, I've done all the input this week and now uh, today is Thursday the 29th of June and I am going to sit down this afternoon and re-outline, but I've got like 75 podcast interviews today, but um, between them I'm going to uh, do the outlining. So I'm really finally excited to get back to that because like I started off like fucking loving this book and then I crashed into this wall and was like, no! all dramatic Sasha it's broken I've ruined it I'm never gonna be able to write a book again uh and of course it's all total bullshit exhausted tired nonsense so um now 
<laughs> that I've input, I'm all excited again. And uh, yeah, I'm like chomping at the bit to get to this afternoon so that I can uh, do all of the re-outlining. And then I'm going to get to write again tomorrow, which is my favourite thing. So whew, that, that was a whistle stop. We are 19 days away from holiday. And I tell you what, I am fucking counting every single one of those days down. <laughs> So yeah, I think that is probably the most of my update. I'm really, really tired and I'm going very slowly. I am being very bad at replying to anything. I uh, I just don't have the spoons to make decisions. Like I, I, am, I am at, uh, listen, so I'm trying to prevent myself going into burnout because um, I, I can't afford that. So, you know, that is why I'm being a bit shit at replying to notifications. I'm not really replying to emails. I'm not really replying to anything other than critical stuff. And I'm trying to conserve all of my energy uh, for um, the podcast and for uh, the words because I need the words for the next thing. And then what I'm hoping is that after holiday, uh, I come back completely rejuvenated and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I will be fine after holiday. This is very typical of me before a holiday. It's just that I don't normally get this bad because we normally have one of these every year. So yes, anyway, I'm going to stop talking. All right. The rebel of the week this week is Carrie in Virginia. Carrie says... I have been raised by a rebel mum and there are so many stories it's hard to pick one to share. So I'll start with the first one in my childhood that I can actually remember. I was seven years old and we lived in the American Midwest, Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> that was hard for me to say. And my mum was our brownie troop leader, which was what the elementary school girl aged uh, Girl Scouts were called. We were in a small suburb and everyone in our small town went to one elementary school. And we were all in one class per grade. Apparently, in our second grade, our class had discovered the joy of using forbidden words. And the teacher had mentioned to the parents that they should talk to their kids about not cussing. Mum took this to heart and decided the brownies needed to tackle the issue. Did she tell us not to swear? Uh, no. That would be far too boring. Instead, my mother wrote down... <laughs> every swear word she could think of, each on an index card. Then, at the brownie meeting in the school cafeteria, she passed the index cards out, one to each girl. She claims she, she thought that if we knew what the words really meant, we would be too embarrassed to use them. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but if we were still going to use them after that, then at least we would use them correctly. <laughs> So each girl, each mortified girl, got a cuss word on an index card. She naturally gave me the F word, as even she knew that she couldn't give that to someone else's child. We were all supposed to define our word and use it in a sentence. <laughs> this is fucking brilliant. But that is where I was taught that fuck is, an, is actually an acronym that stood for unlawful for unlaw that stood for for unlawful carnal knowledge and supposedly used to be on signs of people in stocks for punishment so everyone could know their crimes 
We also learned SHIT, also an acronym. When manure and bat guano uh, were shipped across oceans, the stench was so awful that containers were painted with the acronym SHIT, Ship High in Transit. So the stink could at least uh, help helped by the sea breeze instead of suffocating everyone in the depths of the ship. Alas, I have since learned both of those acronym stories are false, with fuck coming from Middle Dutch, Swedish, Norwegian, Germanic words, and shit stemming from the Old English word for diarrhoea. But the acronyms made for a better brownies learn to swear lesson. And in case you were wondering, that was the last year my class had brownies. No one signed up after that. Part of me wonders if mum did all of it to get out of selling cookies or if she was truly adamant about the proper use of cuss words. With my own child, I taught them that all words were appropriate in certain times and places. So naturally, if you were going to use potty words, you needed to go to the potty room to say them. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, I love this. And yes, I did find my rebel mother and child sitting on the edge of the bath the bathtub once cussing together when my kiddo was about five they both had a busted look on their faces when I walked in <laughs> here is to another generation of rebels oh my god <laughs> oh my god this is incredible absolutely incredible I love that your mum was doing that Oh, my days. I, I actually almost think that the rebel parent and grandparent stories, like, are almost even funnier because, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I just fucking love these stories. That's made my day. I, I actually has have tears of laughter from trying not to, um, you know, give you a belly cackle uh, and keep it all very restrained on the podcast. But that was absolutely excellent. I love this story so much. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. We are always in need, so please do send them in. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. You can email your Rebel story to Becca over on the Rebel... Uh, sorry, <laughs> over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons this week, but a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like Poison and Prose writing and Q&A sessions, the uh, movie nights, the Rebel Masterclasses, and the Slack community, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This week is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, but rather than me tell you all about them, I'm going to play a word from one of my patrons to tell you all about why they enjoy Pro Writing Aid. I've had Pro Writing Aid for years now and frequently use the web editor program to check what I've written in my emails and newsletters. When checking my stories, either directly in Microsoft Word through the add-in feature or in the web editor on the Pro Writing Aid website, Pro Writing Aid is my go-to resource for grammar and spelling checks. And as much as I love the grammar and spelling checks, that's only half of what their editing software can do. Some of my favorite tools ProWriting Aid offers are the overused words, echo words, and sentence length features. I've recommended ProWriting Aid to many of my author friends, as well as many of my friends and family who are not writers. Not only is this program a must have, but it's also a sanity saver. That was Kimberly Grimes and Kimberly's second book in her uh, duology, Young Adult Duology series. Uh, the second book is called Fawnness, has just released uh, last week. So if you like young adult fantasy, um, then I highly recommend that you go check it out. Okay, that's enough from me this week. It was a slightly 
slightly extended uh, intro. So let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I'm joined by Brock Swinson. Brock is an interviewer for creative screenwriting and the author of Ink by the Barrel. He is currently the host of Creative Principles Podcast, where he speaks with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, and discusses the habits, routines, and methods of creative life. Hello, and welcome. Thank you. Really glad to be here. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. So before we dive into your new book, Ink by the Barrel, which has a very interesting uh, way that you're putting it out into the world, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey? And like, how did you, how did you come to where you are today? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, meandering. I, I did go to school to kind of learn screenwriting. Um, I lived in LA for a bit doing commercials and some bad TV shows more, not really not writing more like working on set and some of that stuff. So I've always kind of approached, I've always wanted to be writer director. I'm actually making my first documentary. Now I'm realizing doing some podcasts that I'm kind of all over the place. So I like to write in a multitude of ways. Um, so I always kind of been breaking in for screenwriting. I did get a job at creative screenwriting magazine while I was there. I replied to a job on Craigslist, which is insane. I've been there for 10 years interviewing this led to crazy, you know, interviewing people like Aaron Sorkin and Ethan Hawke and these these giant names in the, in the business and really can ask them almost whatever I want to. So that's really like inspired me to keep writing, you know, the whole time. And and then I'm kind of, this is my first book. I've been a ghostwriter. I've written like 10 books as a ghostwriter. I've been a copywriter for like 10 years too. So those things pay the bills. And this is the first time I really like put my name out there and giving away this first book for free and just seeing kind of how it goes. I find that so interesting. And the fact that you've got to speak to so many great names in the industry as well. What like so your book is based on all the lessons that you've learned. But I suppose my question is, like, what have you learned about interviewing, like from having so much experience talking to these people who are like titans of writing? Like, yeah. what, what have you learned about the like, about interviewing? I mean, the biggest thing, like some of those, you know, especially starting out and I'm like 22 or something, I was so nervous. Right. So I actually had this, I had a sales job at the time when I was talking to Aaron Sorkin, I would go do interviews in my car on my lunch break. So I'd be on my phone in my car talking to, you know, someone I've dreamed of talking to, or that I want to emulate or something like that. Back then I was like, just rolling through my questions, probably not even listening to what they're saying till later. Cause you just, you don't really, you know, it's just, it's a bit overwhelming at first. Now though, I honestly, like, I mean, I have some, I have a certain set of questions I ask, but it's more like, I barely prep. I don't really, I just have a conversation. I know what I want to talk about. I talk about behaviors. I would say most of my ever, most of my content is evergreen. So like you can listen to it anytime. It's not just like, you got to hear it right now. Uh, depending on what it is once in a while, like with Ethan Hawke, he's done so many interviews. I just talked about his project. Right. So that one's a little bit more unique, but I typically just like have a conversation at the end. I'll plug whatever they're promoting, but I really want to know like, What's their origin story? What got them to where they are today? What are their false beliefs? What are just the weird things that they learned about writing over the years? And and try to get some motive. I try to get the good news and the bad news and the realities of the business and and just learn all I can from these like really prolific people. Oh, I find that so interesting. So this podcast is rocking up to two hundred episodes. 
Um, and I've done one a week very consistently for like four years, well, almost four years. And uh, like, I very much like to prep in advance. Like I like to see people's content, like so that I can kind of base questions on what they're saying. But it's it's taken me a really, really long time to get to the point where I'm even comfortable to go off script. Like for a long time, I would just ask my questions and, and that was it. But definitely, I would say in the last five months, I felt more comfortable. Like it, it becomes easier to listen and to mm. really like hear what people are saying. And then yeah. just to use your curiosity to like dive off into a tangent. But I, I feel like that was a long, t- a lot of confidence building to get to that point, to feel brave enough to ask those questions. So yeah, I love that that's yeah, something sure. that you learn, learn as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think in the best answers are in some follow-up anyway, like you, like in the, in a few occasions, like I got to interview Mel Brooks, but it fell through and it was just like, email me five questions. It was kind of like that. And you just lose, I mean, you lose a lot there because you want to talk to him in person, but I don't get there. I don't get to say, oh, well, you just said this or something like that. So some of those where they're, if they're super famous, I'll, I will go do a little bit of research, but I'm looking for something where the previous interview or something like that should have followed up and they didn't. And I'll almost, re- I'll, I'll say, you know, one time you said this, what do you think? And I'll try to like take it further. So I'm almost trying to make more time than we have, you know, and then a lot of these are set up with PR companies. So I just talked to like Peter Gold, who was a creator of Better Call Saul. They tell me I've got like 30 minutes right when I get on there and say, oh, we, we're cut down to 15. So I'm like, all right, I'm skipping the first like four or five things I want to say and just like kind of trying to get to the rest of it, you know. Oh my God. That is, I'm like, my heart's like, I, I don't adapt very well. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the prospect of having my, I'm literally, I've got pins and needles in my fingers, even thinking about having to have my time cut short. I love this though. Like, um, so, so where did the concept for your book come from? Because the way that you came to me is that you're trying to give away like a lot of copies. So just talk about like the creation of it and like the ethos behind how you're trying to get it into the world. Yeah. So it's definitely like a combination of things. Uh, some of that's from my time in marketing. So another, like, you know, I got the magazine job on Craigslist, another weird route. I had like this job writing about the walking dead TV show. I got paid like 10 bucks an article. It was nothing. That site did pretty well. And the owner referred me to a job at ClickFunnels. And then I learned marketing from people like Russell Brunson. I got to write some copy for like Tony Robbins and Grant Cardone, these like giant names. And then I worked for this guy named Pace Morby especially Russ, Russell Brunson and Pace, they just give everything away. Like, so I think a lot about the combination of things. If you look at people I've interviewed, I've been very fortunate in that, but I'm still coming at this. I'm a ghostwriter. I'm kind of a nobody. You know, I've been in these meetings, but no one knows who my name is, right? So I call that barred authority. I'm using some of those names to get into calls or book other people. Cause now I can, even though my show is still not, enormous. So I don't, I can't say I've got hundreds of thousands of listeners, but I can say I've talked to X, Y, Z. That'll kind of get me the next meeting or something like that. So, uh, Pace calls it a go-giver mentality. This kind of comes from a book by, uh, I think his name is Bob Burr. It's a, it's a, it's an older book, but really the idea is like, I'm just giving away as much as I can. I want to build that trust with the audience. So if I give away, like I'll give away a 30 day challenge, which I just did in April, I'll give away this book and the audio book. All that's on brockswinson.com right now. I want people to see that, like, I'm putting a lot of time into these things. Like you might not know me, but I want you to trust me. And then hopefully 
you know, I'll send you a weekly email. I want, I don't want to, over, you don't want to overwhelm people either, but you want them to start to trust you and see some value. And the next thing you know, they're maybe they'll buy your second book. And I'm also thinking very long haul. I don't care about just writing one book. I'm not writing a book like a business card, which a lot of people do today. I want to write a book every two years. I want to write two screenplays every year. I want to do these things as long as I can. Like that's why it's called secrets from prolific writers as a subtitle, even though like it even felt like a little, I think it's like a confidence thing too. It even felt like a little hypocritical, like, well, can you say your first book is about being prolific when it's your first book, you know? So, um, but I think just, I just, you want to kind of build that trust with your audience and give away as much value as you can and the money will come later. That's so interesting because I mean, a lot of indie authors that I know use uh, like a we call them like reader magnets in order mm-hmm. like we're giving something away to collect email addresses. But to yeah. give away the whole book in such an ag- not I don't want to say I mean aggressive positively, but like aggressively yeah. try to give away the book yeah. is was kind of like quirky and unique to me that's why I was like oh this is really interesting so that's why I was interested to know what the long-term plan was because of course using that as a marketing funnel you hope that there is something on the other end of that so is that are you going to be teaching like screenwriting or like are the the books you say you want to do another book in two years is that um like in the same arena or like what where are you gathering? Where are you leading people is what, yeah, I suppose I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, the, de- the definitely the next book will be something about a combination of writing and marketing. I put a lot of mindset stuff in there, but you almost have to kind of sneak it in because I think that's so important. Like I definitely wrote this first book like to myself 10 years ago. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't make it a habit. I couldn't be consistent. I'd get excited and inspired and write 10,000 words and then not do anything for three weeks or something like that. I think that's like most people. So like one thing I did, yeah, I did this challenge to go with. There's a 30-day prolific challenge. Every day, at first I was like, oh, I'll do an email giveaway. Like I'll just do a, here's some advice, 30 days in a row. I was like, well, that's not really big enough. And that some of this comes from working with those guys and seeing what all they do. I was like, well, instead, I'll record video content of me giving advice from the book every single day. And I'll show clips from my uh, interviews. So it's like me talking, here's Joseph Gordon-Levitt talking about the same thing. Here's some, here's me talking, here's Jim Gaffigan kind of adding to what I just said from all this stuff that I've recorded over the years. And I just want to kind of get that out there. So a thousand people joined first for, for free. I just gave it to them for free. A few hundred actually took it. And then like I let 12 people like sign up for a mentorship with me. So I'll talk to them one-on-one and it's funny because like you don't you try to guess what the problems are in marketing, but it's usually something way simpler or like there was a poet who wants to get into short stories, but it was just like too daunting for her to do. Like she was like, I just for some reason she likes to write, you know, she can write for 30 minutes and, and write a poem. She likes to see this done, whether or not she's saying that, but she had trouble moving to just a, a short story. So like one thing I said, well, I was like, well, tell me the one that you've had success with that you told me. And I was like, well, let's let's talk about that theme some more. I was like, what if you just like, I like to kind of help people transition this way. Like, what if you think about that theme and you write 10 or 20 poems around that theme and then you see if there's a story there. So it's like moving in one direction with something you're familiar with. And then someone else wants to get into copywriting. So I've kind of made this like, if the umbrella is to be prolific, what I'd really like to do because I'm still personally trying to break in different ways too. This first book is self-published. I'm making my first documentary now, but I'm kind of breaking up, but I'm not like in the writer's guild yet. So I'm just, I'm right on the cusp of a, a handful of things that I'm kind of trying to figure out. So 
I almost think like when I tell people it's great to go listen to, you know, um, Aaron Sorkin talk, but if you want to break into screenwriting, you should go listen to my interviews with someone who just broke in. There's more value in someone just a level or two ahead of you. So I'm maybe, you know, five years of grinding away that, that they haven't done yet. So the courses I'd like to make in addition to maybe more of a one-on-one mentorship, which I was doing is like how to write a nonfiction book in 30 days, how to write a movie in 30 days, stuff where there's some completion there. Uh, one thing we're doing right now that'll be up in um, in July is like how to get your first client on Upwork in five days guaranteed. And I'll show you like exactly how to do it. So I've been doing freelance for like 10 years and it's it's just like a, a series of things that you do. But I kind of I kind of see these things as very similar, even though it sounds very different. But it's just like to me, it's like, well, it's just being prolific. It's like, that's what I want to spend my time doing. I really want to serve people within that same mindset. I love that. I I want to die exhausted so that I have been prolific my whole life. <laughs> right. Right. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Like my, if I don't die exhausted, I've done something wrong. Um, one of the things you talked about earlier was false beliefs. Um, and you uh, talk in the book uh, about the mistakes we make, like with our time. So yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of both of those areas, like the false beliefs that we have, kind of the mistakes we're making there and like our time management mistakes as well. Yeah, everybody, you know, usually has one like a big false belief. I think when you're younger, you look to like, and there's like probably less than 20 examples of like, someone who wrote their first thing and made it big. Everybody wants to be a, a Tarantino or J.D. Salinger. I think like when I was a kid, that's what I thought. Oh, you just write this one perfect book or something and that's it, you know. But it's just like ridiculous. And it's like, it's also not a career. It's not fulfilling. And I think like our generation is starting to understand, like, I really, I really don't want to retire. Like, I really don't even see that as an option. I don't want to go work somewhere and then quit. I want to do really fun, creative things that don't really feel like work and, you know, find a new path and, Nothing I do today existed when I was in high school. So like, how would I have known when I was 16, what I want to do? But it's more like, I want to be prolific. I want to be a writer. I want to be some type of creative like this. So I'm going to go this way and be flexible in my approach to get there. I think that's one of the big, like false beliefs people have. Um, What was the second part of your question? It was about. So I was talking about the mistakes we make, both like in terms of the mindset, false beliefs, but also about time. One of the things yeah. that I loved about about what you said, one of my friends uh, picked up a quote, and, I, and she I can't remember who she said actually said it, but it was like, create a life you don't want to take a vacation from or something like that. Yeah. But the point is, is I don't feel like I have a job. I have a lifestyle. Like my, my business is my lifestyle. Like that is, yeah. you know, so I don't feel like I work. I just have fun all the time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, it's true. That's how I feel. But yeah, sorry, it was it was about um, kind of false beliefs and and again, like mistakes, but with our time management. Yeah, I mean, time management is, is massive, right? I mean, I think like I and when I think Michael Michael Landon told me he's a writer. He wrote the show Looking on HBO, and he said like for a long time I just didn't defend my time. So like somebody wants to go get a beer, somebody wants to do this. I say, yes, I say, yes, I'm the same way. Or I have been for a long time with my, like, I'm very accountable to other people, but not to myself. I think that's the biggest problem. That's the biggest thing that people have. If you say something like I'm going to get up and, and I think it's, and it's also like doing this challenge. It's better, especially if you've never finished anything, it's better to be like, 
I'm going to write for 20 minutes, not I'm going to write a thousand words because that's harder, right? So every time you can focus on more process oriented things, but you really just have to defend your time. It, it's just like finding something that works for you. It's usually when in the rest of the world to sleep. So in the morning, it's at night. It's when, I don't know, like even like I have a one-year-old now. So like I went from writing at night to writing in the morning. If I don't get up at four or five in the morning and get a few creative hours in, it's not going to happen. Now, sometimes it does, but I talk in the early in the book about inevitable success. If you want to ensure that this thing happens, you're going to have to do it when you have to do it. And it actually like starts to simplify things for you. Like, you, okay, it's actually not that complicated. It's pretty simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It is hard to do the same thing every day, especially when you hit these plateaus, you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You're writing bad pages, whatever it is, but Getting through that, it's all part of being prolific. You're going to change your style a hundred times. You're going to change what you want to write about. And even like you're going to go through writer's block or slumps or be traveling or get sick or whatever, but you don't want to have too many days off. You want to kind of get back into it and and, and just kind of keep working in that same direction. Yeah. And I think like, I really liked what you said in that. I can't remember quite the phrasing, but, it was, but the essence of it was that um, it, it's not always going to work. Things are going to change. Yeah. Things are going to get get in the way. And I definitely know that my process has changed over the years. I used to try and do what everybody says, which is to write every single day. And that really yeah. doesn't work for me. Well, I'm mm. a binge writer, so I can write yeah. a whole novel in a very short space of time, but then I need time off to like refill yeah. that well. And, and as long as I keep those boom and bust cycles going consistently, mm then I continue to be prolific. But when I was trying to do like a smaller amount of words for every single day, I just ended yeah. up like wrecked, like completely drained because it's not, it's like not the right use of my energy. But I, yeah, I, yeah not, I know that not everybody is like me either. Some people do need that consistency. Every I've got friends who are definitely like everyday writers and I yeah. kind of look on and I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that because you know I you know you always the grass is always greener right yeah um how so you've talked a lot about like protecting your time like how can we be better at saying no hmm. I mean the more I really get into it and try to focus on things the more I think you do need some type of life per life purpose that you're going towards meaning like and right now like I'm not like someone asked me the other day on a podcast because it, it sounds like okay, I'm getting paid to write books or something like that. And I'm still doing a variety of things. I've got like seven clients right now that I'm working with between ghostwriting books, writing landing pages, doing marketing emails, just like a variety of things. I'm working on a documentary. I'm writing a screenplay that I want to sell if the documentary works. I wanted this other thing. Um, you just kind of have to just keep going in that same direction. Like, I don't, I don't know. I think there's a sweet spot too. I like to have about three things going on, like three to four things. And if you have too many, you're going to get overwhelmed. Whenever you're going one step in 20 directions, you're not getting anywhere. You have to kind of have to like eventually kind of narrow that down. But the same, what you just said before, your same point, it also doesn't have to be like writing, writing every day. I think it's like creative output every day. It could be outlining. I do a lot of note cards when I write nonfiction books. So I'm just throwing pile, piles of note cards together right now for my next book, which I'll probably write a year from now, just based on like this other work I'm doing. So I think it's just, yeah, moving in that same direction as much as you can. No, I, I I love that. I love the night cars as well. And like the, letting the intellection think and loop yeah. over because I write nonfiction as well. And like, it does take me longer to do almost 
to like percolate the lesson that I'm trying to convey than it does for the fiction. Like the fiction, I find fiction can be methodical and therefore like once you have those processes and structures nailed, like it then becomes easier to to get the books out. Okay, so let's talk about screenwriters and the plethora of people that you have spoken to, of which there are so many incredible quotes in the book. Talk to me about self-sabotage. Like, what have you learned from everybody about self-sabotage? I think, like, I, I try to, um, doing, you know, doing a few of these interviews, like, I feel like maybe I'm noticing some things about myself. I, I feel like there's something I have where I see information in odd places that I always relate back to writing. It's kind of like when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. One of the best things I've heard recently it's actually, I think he's Daniel Craig's trainer, Simon Watterson, maybe he wrote a book called Intelligent Fitness, but he just said like everyone kind of gives up at like six weeks, whether you're successful or a failure. And it seems like that's true in writing and almost everything you're doing. It's like, I know that when I, like I've done things like perfectly, and usually that's just not a really good sign, ironically, like uh, you'll be doing some weight loss thing challenge with your writing whatever you've hit four to six weeks something like that and then you're like i've been doing so good i just need to kind of like chill out a little bit i need to go celebrate you know and i think some of that's okay but it really goes back to like that stoicism mindset of like win or lose you shouldn't really have doubt you should just kind of get up the next day and and do the same thing or do some version the same thing just kind of keep going in the direction you know you should be going in yeah, uh, I love that. I have done those boom and bust cycles, so many things, except writing. Writing is like the one thing that I've done consistently um, yeah. over the years. And I just hit my one year of exercise, which I'm like, nice. super. yeah, thank you. I'm really <laughs> proud because like, actually, it's pretty hard to stay consistent. Like, have you ever heard of um, Seth Godin, the book yeah. called The Dip? And yeah. He t- yeah. And that kind of feels very like... Um, synonymous with what you're saying in terms of like we all see this immediate kind of success and feel like the validation and then actually when it gets hard like most people start to quit um and yeah, it, it makes no sense the other problem i've kind of heard recently too is like if you're training for a race or you're just planning to finish this first novel and you don't have a plan the day after that that's another big fall off like you're just gonna because you're just like everyone who there's so many stories of someone like losing a hundred pounds of weight and they hit their goal or whatever it is. And then a year later, they're back worse than where they were before because they're only trying to hit the goal. They're not trying to create the lifestyle. They're not thinking about the longevity of it. And I, I try to think a lot about that. Like there's such a cost to everything. How does this affect your entire life? And it's part of that being connected with your future self and really just thinking ahead and you can't always do it, but if you do it, pretty regularly hopefully you won't have that fall off afterwards I love that so much um marathon runners suffer with that problem all of the time I trained for the London Marathon multiple times and had that exact issue where you just fall off um at the end and the interesting thing about what you just said is this time that in order to get to my one year my cats are going insane in the background but the uh in order to get to my one year I went into this differently I went in exercising for joy and for no other reason and the consequence has been like weight loss and like you know all the mental health benefits and and all of the rest of it what do you feel about writer's block because you do talk about writer's block in in the book as well 
Uh, that's I think the only swear word in the book is I say writer's block is bullshit. So I don't really believe in writer's block. If you, I mean, I've talked to 400 writers who can't afford to have writer's block. Um, I really think it comes from, you know, that person who's like, I'm going to sit there and write the next great novel. Like the, this is going to change the world. How do you begin? What do you possibly write after that's the first thought in your head? I can't imagine what you think you're going to come out with, you know? So you have to just assume you're writing a lot of bad versions of of anything to get to something pretty good. You know, even if it is great, it's not really up to you to decide it's great. I think it's up to you to make it the best you can. I'm big on like dates and accountability. So I write horror movies with a partner. So I have the accountability of him showing up every week. Everything else I do, I either have someone, you know, if I'm working with clients, there's accountability there. When I first hired, I have an assistant now. When I first hired her, I was like, I need someone to talk to every Monday so I can be like, hey, I'm going to get this done by next Monday and I'm going to hand this to you. And I need real people because the people have, have asked me about like, do you use these apps and set up this stuff? And I'm kind of like old school with like paper and pencil. I've got like a bulletin board over here with something on it. I've got another board with something on it. I see you have the similar kind of behind you there. It's just like whenever I use the phone's okay if you're traveling or something like that. I've started like printing out like my big list of stuff like non-negotiables for the month. Assuming you can only get three things done a day. You can't get more than 90 things done in a month. So if I say I'm promising myself, I'm going to get these 40 things done. I will print those out and the rest of them are blank spaces. And then you start to think more about the essentialism of it. Like is what I'm writing down as important as everything else I promised I was going to do. And then you can't go above and beyond. So it kind of, it kind of gives you like a minimal and maximum because we've all had days where like, I mean, I crushed it. And that's where the dip comes to, right? You crushed it three or four days in a row. I was doing something recently, like I was working out in the morning, all this stuff like that. And like, I don't know, day five, I just like couldn't sleep. Mine wouldn't shut off. I'm up till three. I, I get up at four or five in the morning. If I'm up till like one or two, like the next day is pretty much shot. And I just like when I'm trying to do 10 things instead of three things, I have a bad mental day because I'm just staring at this paper the whole time instead of just like these are what I promised I would do. And that's it. And then you can like be done pretty early in the day if you're really like dedicated to that minimum and maximum. My mind shattered when you um, said 90 things in a month. Like I, I feel like a queasiness in my stomach because I'm like, no, that's not enough. It's not enough. But actually, like you're probably right, to be honest. And that I feel a bit sick thinking about that because <laughs> I am one of these people with like obscene to-do lists. However, I have, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Clifton Strengths and everybody listening is going to roll their eyes and go, everybody drink because I mentioned them all the bloody time. One of my strengths is called Achiever. And um, that particular strength works very well with things broken down on a list, yeah. like into the minutia, because I kind of get like energy pennies off of crossing everything off. So like if I do something yeah. that's not on my list, I put it on my list just so I can cross it off. <laughs> yeah, but, see, I did that forever and I was like negotiating too much, I think. Well, and so that's what you've just said has that's why it shattered my mind a little bit, because I was like, yeah. oh, my God, what if I allowed myself a list of, you know, three things a day for the five days a week for the month? And yeah. those become the non-negotiable. Like nobody's ever said that to me in that way. And I literally am going to take that away and implement it because I yeah. bloody love that. Um, but the other thing that I love about what you said is the accountability. And I 
I have always had accountability partners uh, from the get-go writing. But now I share my daily to-do list with somebody who shares their daily to-do list with me. And it's somewhere digital where we can both watch and see each other cross those like things off and it is so super motivating because i'm like well i don't want to not have anything crossed off (laughs) right yeah that's awesome yeah Yeah, no so but but, i mean it's exactly what you're saying about your weekly thing and it's so funny that all of these methods are very very similar but they manifest in different ways and i just yeah, yeah like i love it like the old school things do work yeah i I just found like if i'm writing down five to ten things i you look at the if if something happens if the baby's sick or whatever it's later it's early afternoon you start doing the easy things but you leave the important things that's the urgent and the important right well the later in the day it gets the more urgent the urgent gets if you kind of like these are my three things that are more creative output i'm gonna do them the first thing in the morning i'm not checking emails all that kind of stuff later you can put out fires and you'll probably still do 10 things but they don't necessarily like some things are not worthy of the list. It's just kind of like, it's just like that simple, really. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay. Talk to me about voice. Voice author, Authors discuss voice and, you know, how to create it, how you get it, how you learn it, how you define it. What have you learned about voice over your years of writing and from screenwriters? Definitely a couple things, two big things that come to mind. And one of them came from this uh, kind of younger comedian named Moses Storm. A lot of comedians, I've talked to, I don't know, half a dozen comedians. Um, Moses told me like, it's okay when you get started to try on other voices. If you're getting on stage the first time, go and do a Seinfeld impersonation a little bit. Go and don't, don't steal jokes, but do the voice, meaning the rise and fall, the tone, the pattern, you know. Uh, go try John Mulaney for a little bit. As soon as someone says, you sound like John Mulaney, stop doing that. But I think the more you try these things on, everyone does this. Like I know I wrote a bunch of bad Judd Apatow inspired screenplays in college and stuff like that. Cause that's what was, that's what we were watching at the time. It was like 2007 knocked up, just come out. I think everybody does some version of that, but the more you like kind of try these different things out, they start to kind of fade away. And then what's left is your voice. That's what a commonplace book is like the note card system. You're just kind of figuring out who you are based on hundreds of inputs. And eventually you determine what, what's important to you. I think the longer version of that, when people say you have to write like a handful of bad scripts to get something good made, look at these writers and directors who write about the same thing over and over and over again. So like every Tarantino movie is a seventies revenge inspired type piece uh, Paul Schrader, all of his movies are about like an anti-hero heading towards a violent catharsis at the end. Uh, the 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 Oscar that won um, Parasite that won the Oscar a couple of years ago, he's done seven movies, I think, about class warfare. You know, so he's just like obsessed with this idea. And I'm kind of finding that like more and more. It's like, especially with my writing partner, it's interesting as I'm like, we always think this idea is unique and we always talk about the same five or six movies when we start talking, which is crazy because there are millions of movies in a lifetime. I bet most people who watch regular movies see about 5,000 movies in a lifetime, like 10 or 20 of those will stand out to you. And they're probably some you saw like in high school. And then you start thinking about it that way. You kind of already know what your voice is. It's almost like a way to hijack who you think you are and then just lean into it and then strip away the parts that don't feel like you and make yourself more and more you. I think that's all voice really is. Yeah, and yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a bit of 
like self-belief as well, like nestled in there, like needing to believe that like your yeah. voice is valid and worthy and like what you have to say in your stories is worthy as well. Um, I love that you talk about mimicry because um, that's something that's really important to me. God, my cats are literally, I don't know if you can hear them, but they're making so no, much no. noise. They're destroying <laughs> okay. something out there. Anyway, um, Neil Gaiman, in, I don't know if you've yeah. seen his masterclass, but in his yeah. masterclass, he says, most of us only find our voices after we've sounded like a lot of other people. And like, that is something that I think is so true and like true to what you've just said as well. But like, if you think about evolution, how do we learn to speak? by copying the sounds of our parents? Or like, how do we learn to walk? By like watching other people walk and mimicking that. And, you know, I think I think mimicry has a bad rap, but actually in mimicry is uh, iteration because we are different. Our experiences are different. Our life stories are different. And therefore we're never going to choose exactly the same words that somebody else kind of chooses like you say it's all in the rhythm or the tone or the tools that somebody else is using and then over time we do make them ours so yeah I, I love I love that I think it's harder to see it in yourself because you don't see some value there so like part of the reason my book is so full of quotes is my first book is like I'm using borrowed authority I'm relying on another hundred writers to kind of publish my first book but it really is hard to see what you specifically know that no one else knows. There was a show a couple of years ago called Mayor of Easttown that uh, Kate Winslow was in. It's a really good show on HBO, but it's so specific to this area. And you could tell that he just spent a lot of time learning this. I mean, he grew up in this area, but it's crazy to grow up somewhere and not be blinded by where you are to see what is unique to outsiders. And I bet I would almost argue that he like had some other people come in or he went away for a while and came back. Part of the one of the students I was talking to was writing a memoir and she was having trouble with a few things. And I was like, why don't you like ask some of your best, let some of your best friends or people who knew at this time interview you about that. And you interview them and see what comes up that is wild and how your memory changes and everything else. And it's so hard to see like what's uniquely you. You really it's it's so hard to know it, which is such an odd thing to say. Yeah, it is because we live it every day. And yet we do go blind to it. But then, you know, that's why we need an editor, because we go blind yeah. to our stories as well. I love that, though, that concept of having other people interview you. That has um, blown my mind. I know that's the second time you've blown my mind today. I love, I love this so much. But one of the points that you pick, you you made, I do want to use as a segue. So you mentioned that you use a lot of quotes from other people. And so I am interested what is like the biggest lesson or lessons that you have learned on this journey? So like you've you've learned from all the greats, but how has that kind of manifested itself in you? Like what have you changed over the years or like what is the big, biggest things that you have changed as a result of all of the learning that you've done? And that could be craft or it could be business or yeah. I think part of it is just not like not expecting it to happen. Like just assuming you're in this for a very long haul, win or lose, it doesn't really matter. And I've had some success since my failure. And I think there's some negative parts of me that like, I don't really celebrate success. It's like one second. I'm like, okay, well, what's next? Like I'm right there for the next thing. When you said uh, Neil Gaiman a second ago, when I did that course, one thing I said like probably five times in that course is he has a part where you can sit at your desk and you can write or you can do nothing, but you can't do anything else. I think about writing like so many things that you think are so complicated. They're often more binary than you think. Like it's just like 
you're just doing this one kind of simple thing. It doesn't have to be overly complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Other than that, though, like, I'm sure you do the same thing. Like I'm using as a sounding board for my problem of the week. Like what's bothering me right now? Uh, Can I ask you about that? I just asked someone, um, I was talking to this, this Icelandic actor and I was trying, I was exploring some idea and I was like, what do you think about the, like the difference in an artist being seen and a craftsman being kind of hidden? I just got this great answer kind of from him that I'm kind of still toying with, but that's going to be a theme of something else I'm working on. So once in a while, I'll like, Hey, we're out of time. Can, can I ask you just something totally off the wall? that makes no sense. Or, or maybe even something personal. If someone mentions like they just had a baby girl, I just had a baby girl. Then we've got some, it's more of a connection there. I do the same thing when like apply to jobs. If you can have some little bit of a personal aspect, it just, it does seem to kind of work better that way. Mm. what have you taken from screenwriting into your novel writing Mm. I don't know that's a good question um I think there's a there's a great book from Chuck Palahniuk I think it's called Consider This about writing yeah I Um, I have that on my shelf actually to read yeah I do (laughs) because what I think a lot about is just like theme is more important than plot plot's kind of how you sell a movie but theme is like who you are and you can have some themes in almost any type of writing, but it's more like, like when I, when I'm doing a ghostwriting job, I'll say like in the first or second meeting, what do you want the readers to walk away with? And then we have this North star that we're going to. So I think some of that is like creating a North star, knowing where you're going, even if you don't know how to get there. And then another thing that he, he mentions in that book, and you probably see in a lot of his fiction work is like, he has a lot, a lot of really interesting threads that I think like, just they come back, they give you a familiarity. I think that's something I try to do. I don't know. I don't know if it comes out as much in, in a book like this. You probably saw in some chapters, I would repeat a line a handful of times because I want that thing to stick with you as you as you exit that chapter. And every scene is important. Nothing should be wasteful. So I really wrote this book in a way that like you can turn any page and walk away with a nugget. I feel like I mean, I, I, that's the kind of the goal anyway. So what does theme look like to you? You talked about um, asking clients, like, what do you want people to feel? So is theme a feeling for you? Is it an emotion? Like, how? what is it to you? It could be a lesson, like, a you know, a big obvious thing is like fathers and sons. Um, and and it doesn't mean it's, it's like a creative constraint, though, right? So like, look at two very different movies. There's Get Out and there's Crazy Rich Asians. Both of those movies are about meeting your spouse's parents. That's kind of the plot and the theme of those movies, but they're very, very different after that. I think it's more like, so like we're writing this like serial killer story right now, right? So we're I want to have a guy that's it's uh, you're unsure. It's a it maybe be a like a limited series, like an eight episode thing. It's set in the 60s. It's about Cuban immigrants. There's a serial killer p- killing people. We kind of learn to find out eventually that maybe it's more of a cult type thing. That he's spreading this like mind pollution message to people. And the closer we get to him, the crazier people seem to get. Right. So the theme of that idea. Well, let's say the opposite of that first. The guy going after him because this man, let's say he believes there is no God. Therefore, stealing a car and murdering someone's kind of the same thing. Like there's kind of a graduate level of, of things you can start to believe once things don't really matter, right? The other end of that, there's a good guy who's going after him. So to make those just like juxtaposition, let's say he is completely faithful, right? He believes in God. 
at the end of that though, like both of them believing is real, whatever you believe, they both believe something to be true. So like, to me, that would be like the theme, but the plot is, you know, some like, uh, seven meets true detective type spin on it or something like that, you know? Love it. I love it. I find it so interesting when people start talking about craft. And also I love that you mentioned juxtapositions because that is my like all time favorite tool to use. Like I swear to God, the best sellers make the most prolific use of juxtapositions. Like because story is characters are, you know, hero, villain, your start state is different to your end state. But even in marketing, like when you have a juxtaposition in the tagline or the hook, like almost Mm -hmm. always that book ends up shooting to the top of the charts. So yeah, yeah, I love that you said that. And uh, I know somebody listening who's going to roll their eyes because I will have nerded out about what you've just said because I talk about them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that so much. Okay, what is the infinite game and how do we play better? Yeah. So I think like, there's just a ton of infinite games out there. We, a lot of the times we don't see them and it's kind of weird, especially in America growing up, you play finite games, you play sports. There's always a winner. There's always a loser, you know, at least for the most part, then the game's over though. An infinite game means you kind of keep playing on and on and on. So writing itself is infinite game. Uh, all, all types of marketing your work is an infinite game. It's things you can tweak and get better or worse at, or kind of make adjustments for, but it's just more of that same mindset of like, I want to be prolific. I want to keep getting better. And because it's infinite, you actually have the opportunity. Like your limitations are not there. You can continue to get better and better and more specific or take a crazy left turn and go do something totally different uh, because you're playing this infinite game. I love it. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. It's such a unique question. My my assistant was like, make sure you read this one because this one's a little a little different. I had to go back and listen to a few, but I th- I thought more about it, and I'm hoping I'm rebellious in in many ways. But I think the like maybe the theme of the of the some of the rebellion I've done is to not care about permission or gatekeepers, right? So whenever there's a gatekeeper there, like I want to go and be. You want to be in Barnes and Noble or something like that, which is kind of an old dream, right? You want to get published and like these things don't really matter anymore because I've been in like a dozen rooms as a ghostwriter and I've been in rooms where, you know, the guy next to me has got a hundred thousand people on Instagram. They almost don't care what the book's about. I've pitched books that's got me to two or three meetings, but not like I don't have a following, Right. So I'm like, well, this is a gatekeeper and it's one that I don't agree with. So if I'm going to go build an audience of a hundred thousand people, why do I even care about like what they're going to say anyway, if I'm doing all the work and that's the way things are going today, uh, what's kind of the point of that? I'm doing actually the same thing with the documentary. I'll kind of briefly tell you like, so it's called daredevil society. It's about the history of stunts in film from Buster Keaton to the, to the 1920s to today with Keanu Reeves, Jackie Chan, how things have evolved with genres, like an eight hour series I'm working on. After doing so many interviews, I, I saw it was a Bruce Lee documentary came out and a John Belushi interview came out and they weren't doing talking heads. They weren't flying places and filming people and showing them talk. And when I asked the, the director, Bao, he said, well, if I'm talking about Bruce Lee in the 1970s, why am I going to show somebody today that's in their, they're 80 years old? Like it just, it takes you out of the film. So his was more of a creative reason, but I started thinking more of a, a logical monetary reason to do it. It's like, well, 
if I don't have to fly everywhere, that takes a half million dollar movie down to like less than $50,000. So I can make this movie on Zoom in my office here. So I've set up interviews with like 50 stunt people and kind of started going that way. I've already had some great interviews and we're doing teasers and I got somebody to design the poster and none of those things matter. Like even like the people at the top, like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are honestly doing the same thing. They went and made air the new Michael Jordan movie on their own and then sold it to a studio for a higher ratio. They put their own money in. Everybody there is not getting paid to do it. And things are going to go that way because the big gatekeepers, I'm, I'm not talking about just the people answering the emails from, from, you know, us trying to break in the biggest gatekeepers, the studios, that's why there's a writer strikes, while these things are happening, there's questions with AI, everything else. It's getting to where you're only going to see like ideally bad studio sequels and movies where people put their whole heart into it. And hopefully we go just in that direction at some point. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I I don't normally ask more questions after I've asked this question, but now I'm going to have to. Uh, this is breaking everybody, breaking my rules. Um, how rebellious of me. Uh, talk to me about the writer's strike and AI and kind of your view and opinion on it, because I think we are like as a consumer of film, I am. Uh, so I used to go to the cinema like weekly the year I got pregnant I went 45 times because I'm like an avid movie fan um and I I actually prefer movies to series because it's one and done but anyway that's not the point um but I am starting to notice that there is less and less fresh and new coming out so you know but I'm almost more keyed in because I'm like in a peripheral industry in that you know as a writer I look for content I look for input and inspiration so talk to me like about your view on AI and like where you think everything's going and kind of like the strikes and because I find this really interesting I had no idea that Matt Damon had done that yeah Yeah, that that's incredible because I've seen that the trailer and I'm like oh I want to see that yeah yeah, it's a great movie too because they just put a lot of time into it and everything else. I'm, I'm ironically, I've, I've talked about AI a little bit on, on some shows I've done. Ten years from now, things might be different. Right now, like the closest thing out there, and it's not this good, but like let's say procedural TV shows like Law and Order or ER, where the same thing kind of happens every week. To the studios, if a computer can rewrite that based on some news article or something like that, they're like, well, it's good enough. Let's put it out. And to some degree, that's true. I mean, we've seen some Hallmark movies and different things like that. And, you know, because they're already a lot of Hallmark movies are they buy outside of the Writers Guild. So like, there's only 9,000 screenwriters in the world. There's like 200,000 dentists in America, like just like as a comparison, like it's crazy, right? So they're really kind of fighting for the rights. And that's also why it's so hard to break in. At the same time, though, AI is kind of a a genius yet stupid intern. That's kind of how I look at it. I've used it a little bit because I had one of my recent clients was like so obsessed with it. And if you go on Upwork, the the term prompt engineer, at least to my knowledge, didn't exist like six six weeks ago. A prompt engineer is someone who can talk to AI and they have the mind of a copywriter to then tweak what comes out. So... I like to use it a little bit in like stage one where you're really just throwing stuff against the wall. So if I, if I'm talking to a client and I'm like, look, like here's five ideas I have that we could take this book in five different directions and I'll go put some of those in AI, right. And chat GPT, and it'll just kind of spit them out. 
And what the writers, what screenwriters would say is like, well, it's it's just plagiarism. They're just taking things that are already out there, even though they're adjusting it. But it's just like a, a new form of really quick plagiarism that for some reason we're all agreeing with, right? But so they're just they're spitting out five ideas, and they're not bad. Like they're 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 well outlined and clean and pretty. If you start to actually get it to rice up, though, it's super repetitive and clunky and pretty terrible in my opinion. Even it's, it's way better than anything before it. But so I use it kind of as scaffolding. I see like this is how showrunners run a writer's room. They hire 10 people. They have the ideas. They write them. They go back and rewrite them. So it's kind of just like someone to bounce ideas off of. So I'm not as like chicken little about it. I'm not as like fearful of it. You know, the thing right now, I think is like, I don't think AI will take your job. I think someone who can use AI better than you might take your job. So I don't think you can avoid it. So everyone, every writer should maybe, maybe check it out a little bit, but understand that like, you're just going to write more of the same. Like everybody's dream, I think, whether you're writing movies or books or something like that is to break through and like change the zeitgeist a little bit, right? Every movie that really changes the culture, the way people think and see things and feel things, it's going to come from you. It's going to be really personal. It's not coming from a machine, even if they're replicating things that have made us cry before it's, or whatever it is. It's just, it has to be something within you. And that's like, it can maybe do plot, but it can't do theme. Oh, this was so fascinating. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, services, anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, definitely. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Brock Swinson. You can also go to BrockSwinson.com. So I'm giving away this first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers. Uh, that's the PDF and the audiobook. So I like to think they can listen to the audiobook. And like, what did he say about Jerry Seinfeld? And then go kind of control find and, and reread that and hopefully use it as a resource for years to come. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Brock Swinson, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, we have a double whammy. We are speaking to Julie V and Ken Bebel, and we are talking all about uh, their journey from indie to traditional publishing. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. 